Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. So we've completed our sort of mini-series talking about relationships, outreach, and prayer. We begin now a new sermon series in this biblical book of Exodus. And I wonder, as I start this morning, how you are with promises. I never knew the power of a promise, really, or the heartbreak of a broken promise, as much as when I became a parent. When you become a parent to two adorable little girls and an adorable little boy who doesn't understand what a promise is yet, but those two adorable girls clearly do know what a promise is, you say, Daddy promises. I promise. How sure is that? What kind of guarantee backs up that promise? When what I really mean to say is, I will try my hardest. Because the truth is, no matter how much we promise or how many promises we make or what guarantees we give, what we're really saying is, as much as it is up to me, As far as it is within my power, I will try to do this. Of course, as a daddy, after seeing that heartbreak sometimes of a broken promise or a seemingly broken promise, you want to try harder and harder to fulfill that promise the next time. As much as I love my girls and my little boy Isaac and my wife Jessica, that's all we can really do is say, I promise I will try my hardest, but it still may not happen. We break promises, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally. Maybe an emergency comes up, an accident happens, something precludes us from fulfilling those promises. Even the most trustworthy and faithful among us is subject to some things. We are subject to our own energy, our own time, circumstances, emergencies, human limitations that may prevent us from fulfilling a said promise. And many of us in here know how quickly those circumstances can change, even in the midst of a promise. How quickly life can change. In the blink of an eye, seemingly, sometimes it can change. And that changes our ability to keep our promise. As we begin the book of Exodus this morning, we will discover a people in bondage. A people in slavery. But this is just no ordinary people. This is no ordinary nation. This is a people of God's promise. But as we begin our story this morning, we'll see that circumstances have changed. It seems all of it has changed in a verse. And those promises may seem long gone, distant, forgotten, covered up in the dust and the sweat and the tears and the blood of slavery. But here in Exodus, even as we begin this morning, we will also discover the God who made this promise. This God who, with his promises, even amid change and suffering and darkness and confusion, when those promises seem lost, 
This God's promises will always come to pass because they are made by a God who will reveal himself to be none other than the great I am, who, unlike us, is absolutely faithful, absolutely trustworthy, and able to keep every single one of his promises to his people. And we will see that even as we begin in chapters 1 and 2 this morning in Exodus. First, I wanted to give you just a brief introduction. If you have a good study Bible or access to commentaries or something, um, you can see a lot more information on Exodus there. This is just a brief little introduction for us. And there are notes on the Version app this morning for your benefit. Just a little bit about the book of Exodus. This is the second book in the Bible, but it's also the second of five books we call the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, tuk meaning book. We have this five-book introduction to the Bible, often by our, our Jewish friends called the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The name may sound unfamiliar to us, but it just is a Greek word that means a departure. Greek word that means going out. So when you see the book of Exodus, you are seeing a departure, a going out. In this case, the departure of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. I love the Hebrew names for these Old Testament books because they're just kind of just, just what they are. You know, we thought of, let's, let's really give the book a title, you know, with the Greek names. But the Hebrew name for this book is just simply names. Isn't that a great name for a book? Names. It comes from verse 1. These are the names. And then it's just about the genealogy. So I love how the Hebrews just took that name and said, let's call it that. Just the first line. The author of the book of, book of Exodus is Moses. Jesus attests to Moses' authorship. The apostles attest to Moses' authorship. All early Jewish sources and the early church attest to Mosaic authorship. If you want to go and do some research into the arguments against Mosaic authorship, you can do that. Just understand that those arguments are coming from a liberal or compromised view of the Bible that wants to take away from the Bible's inerrancy and the Bible's truthfulness. Okay, we believe in the authorship of Moses. That doesn't mean that things were not added by Joshua or later scribes, such as the narrative of Moses' death, which Moses obviously did not write. Those were added in later, but were accepted by the Jews at that time as God's word. Okay, so when we say mosaic authorship, we mean mainly written by Moses, edited, compiled, put together by Moses. The date of the events we read in Exodus, probably the 15th or 13th centuries BC, sometime between there. And I was like, a long swath of time, but there are not really any clues in the text that tell us when these events took place. We see some clues in the first couple verses about some cities that were built by the Hebrew slaves. And because we see one city called Ramses, many have believed that this was one of the Ramses that ruled over Egypt. So it gave a certain uh, date to that city. Some have gone to the book of Kings and judged the 480 years since this and gone back and traced the timeline and said, no, this is when it was. Um, the date in which it occurred really is not all that important, but most scholars agree sometime between the 13th and 15th century or 15th and 13th centuries B.C. The book of Exodus, as we're going to see, is divided into two halves. Chapters 1 through 19 really give us what we call the narrative. And anytime I say the word narrative, I'm talking about a story. Okay, we have a this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That is chapters 1 through 19. 
And that narrative is the actual narrative of the release of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. So Moses goes, the ten plagues, they're going, the Red Sea. And then we come to Sinai in chapter 19, which switches to the second half of the book, which is mainly God's conversation with Moses on Sinai. And that deals with the law, the covenant, the tabernacle, and God making this covenant with his people. We'll unfold that when we get there. But Exodus, no matter how we divide it or chop it up, has one theme. That theme we've been singing about all morning. God is faithful. God is faithful to keep his covenant promises to his covenant people. That's very simply the theme of Exodus. And we as New Testament Christians need to take it a step further. That all of those promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his work in the church. So even as we unpack Exodus and look at God's promise and God's faithfulness to his people then, we understand that this is pointing us to God's promise ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the formation of the church, and we, his new covenant people, the body and the bride of Christ today. So let's look first here today at Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be taking big chunks of scripture. Don't let that scare you. We're not going to be able to go verse by verse by verse by verse through everything because narrative just doesn't lend itself to that. But I am going to read all of the text to you today from Exodus chapter 1 verse 1 to Exodus 2 verse 10. Let's begin. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came up to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew increasingly, exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And behold, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. When the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that the child was a fine child, she hid him uh, three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him and made a basket of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and and pitch. But she put the child in and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And the sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. This morning, first of all, I want us to see the one promise here in the book of Exodus. The one promise, even as we began this introduction this morning. Moses, the author of this book, also of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, is weaving and coursing these narratives together. These big, broad, epic stories come together through types and shadows and echoes and repetitions. And what we see in Genesis, we'll see in Exodus. And what we see in Exodus, we'll see in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all kind of intermarrying with one another and mixing symbols and types and shadows of the one story that's being told. Of course, we know this is because Moses was not writing on his own accord, but as Peter tells us, was being carried along by the Holy Spirit through that miracle of inspiration, writing what the Lord willed him to write by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so rather than just little uh, piecemeal stories placed together to make some sort of moral tale for us, we see one story and one narrative, not just here in Exodus, but all the way from Genesis to the very end in the book of Revelation. And what we call biblical theology ties these things together in patterns and types and symbols to show us that this is one story. Now, as we begin in verses 1 through 7 here, we see an obvious tie to the first story, where we came from in Genesis. In verses 1 through 7, we see Moses bring back to our minds Jacob, the child of promise after Isaac, his father. Jacob receives the promise, and we know that to Jacob is born these sons who will become, along with Joseph's two sons, the twelve tribes of Israel. He brings Joseph back into the picture, although reminding us now that he has died. He brings all of this back to our memories because he's telling us this is a continuation of the same story we were just learning in Genesis. More importantly, he's tying us to the one promise that we saw in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see what is called the Abrahamic covenant. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord calls out to Abram, and the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and dishonor, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the crux of the promise. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So as Moses brings back in Jacob and the sons of Israel and Joseph, he's reminding us of this promise, a promise made to a man about a nation and ultimately a nation that will be a blessing to the rest of mankind, not just that one nation. We are reminded of that promise. But perhaps Moses also wants us to remember A bigger promise. The fact that we're going through genealogies and birth and people and their sons and all these things come to mind. Maybe we're reminded of Genesis 3.15. This promise made after the fall when God says to Eve, I will put enmity between your seed, the woman's seed, and the serpent's seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We often look at the Old Testament, especially in these these first couple books, we wonder why the obsession with genealogies and who birthed who and if it's a male or if it's a female or what order they came in. Well, it all goes back to this promise that God promised with every passing generation, every single birth, every single son that was born, there was this question, could this be the one, could this be the seed of the woman that's coming to finally crush the head of the serpent. Could this be the redemption that we've been looking for? And so we're reminded of that promise to Abram. We're reminded of that promise to Eve. And all that seems to be going as planned so far. Even though Joseph has died, even though the original fathers of Israel have died, we see in verse 7 that the people of Israel were fruitful. And they increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Moses sort of uses four main phrases here to show us just how great things are going. It seems that the promises of God are going along just as planned. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. Things are going well. The land is being filled with them. Moses intentionally uses language from the book of Genesis here. And maybe you picked up on some of that language. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 22... Genesis 122, God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply to the to beasts of the field, the birds, and every, every, all the creatures. Be fruitful and multiply. And in verse 28, God gives that same blessing to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. In fact, Genesis also tells us, Moses tells us in Genesis, that the land was swarming with these creatures. And so Moses brings all this language back to show us what is going on with the people of Israel. They are being fruitful. They are multiplying. Just like all creation and humanity that God put there in the garden, they are obeying his command and the land is swarming with them. They are increasing. God's original plan for humanity here seems to be coming to pass. God's promise for Israel seems to be coming to pass. This is the story. This is the plan. And we could stop at verse 7 and say, that's the end. There's the promise. There's the covenant. There's the plan. All done. Except, number two, we run into one problem. And that is in verse 8, almost seemingly in the blink of an eye, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not. No, Joseph. We already hit one big wall just when everything seemed to be going so well. 
we have a new Pharaoh who doesn't fit this story. He doesn't know Joseph. He's not impressed by what Joseph did for the land and all the people. He doesn't like these people. In fact, all the people are seeing the increasing numbers of the Israelites in the land of Goshen. And they're not liking what they see. They are a threat to them. And Pharaoh says as much in verse 10 when he says, Lest they, second part of verse 10, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Many scholars agree that it should not say escape from the land, but rather take the land. They're not in slavery yet, so they have no need to escape. And so what Pharaoh is dreadful of is that they'll join with all the other enemies of Egypt and they'll come and they'll overtake Egypt. And so what must be done? These people must be handled. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let's devise a plan to subdue these people lest they grow many in number and join our enemies and overtake us. And the quickest route for this for Pharaoh was enslavement, forced labor. Beginning in verse 11, we see this plan unfold. Therefore, verse 11, chapter 1 of Exodus, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh the store cities of Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You see, again, Moses belaboring the point to help us see the circumstances here. You see key words like taskmasters, heavy burdens, oppressed, slaves, bitter, hard service, ruthless. What a change from verse 7, right? Blessing, fruitful, multiplied, spread, increased, great. What became of God's promises? What became of God's promise to these people? Could he not keep them? Did God, like many of us, suddenly run into his limitations and he was unable to go any further? What was God's plan now? Would someone come into the middle of this promise that has been met with this great problem? Could someone come and deliver them and bring God's promises to pass? I want you to notice some interesting things here in this wording, the, what I'm going to call the antitheses of Genesis. We see the opposites of what we see in Genesis here in this section. What was God's design in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27? God said, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over all the livestock. Let us make man in our image. And verse 28, let them be fruitful and multiply and have dominion and fill the earth. What is Pharaoh's distortion of that in verse 10? Not let us make man in our image. Not let them have dominion. Not let them be fruitful and multiply. But come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. What was God's design in Genesis 1, 28? Aside from being fruitful and multiplying, let them have dominion and multiply and fill the earth. What's Pharaoh's distortion in verses 15 through 16? He says, Then the king of Israel of Egypt, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. 
but if it's a daughter, you shall let her live. Isn't this the way that old serpent, the dragon, works? He takes the good promises of God, the good design of God, the good blessings of God, and he warps them and distorts them. And he lures sinful humanity into taking just a bite of these promises over God's promises. And plunges us into death and sin and misery. Who will stop at nothing to see our destruction and the destruction of God's church. Remember a couple weeks ago in the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing from Herod. The man, the woman, the baby, and the dragon. We saw in Matthew chapter 2 another snippet of this. As Herod, as a type of Pharaoh, under the power and influence of Satan, trying to snuff out God's promise. We saw this was the whole story in Revelation chapter 12. As the dragon was chasing the woman into the wilderness, trying to put an end to this childbirth that she was going to have. Waiting to devour, waiting to destroy But just as God's promise, deliverance, came through this promise of the seed of a woman, he provides deliverance through two midwives now. Even though Pharaoh had distorted and warped God's promise of multiplication and fruitfulness and dominion into death and misery and slavery, God says to Our parents in the garden, through the seed of a woman, will come the destruction of Satan. Now he uses these two midwives, these two randomly named Shifra and Pua. I'm just randomly given their names here for whatever reason, except that we would remember what they did for God's people. In verses 17 through 19, we see that these midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. When confronted by Pharaoh, they made up a story. And again, you can read all the commentaries on whether it was ethical to lie or whether they were really telling the truth and all the ins and outs of that. Needless to say, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and they believed God's promise more than they feared Pharaoh. These two women, strong women, trusting God. And we see in their story... That just as the target of Satan's scheme in the garden, Eve, just as Eve would become the mother of his destruction, these two Hebrew midwives, the target of Pharaoh's plans now, will become the very midwives of Pharaoh's destruction. But just like Satan, just like the serpent, just like the dragon that we read of in Revelation 12, They would stop at nothing. Pharaoh stops at nothing. And so although his plan falls through with these two Hebrew midwives, in verse 22, he unleashes all of Egypt against Israel. Okay, these midwives may not be doing as I command, and they might be screwing this plan up for me, but he says to all the people in verse 22, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let the daughters live. He will stop at nothing to see the destruction that he wants for the Israelites. How quickly we went from Joseph, power, Fruitful, multiplying, life. How quickly we went from those pictures to bondage, slavery, submission, and death. 
It seems now that these who were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth would be snuffed out. It seems that these who were to have dominion over all creation were now to be dominated. It seems that those who were to rule and reign with God's image are now enslaved. I wonder for you this morning how familiar that sounds. How familiar does it sound to be in the midst of blessing and life and joy and peace and happiness and everything is going fine and everything seems to be going according to your plan and then you blink, you wake up one day, you come home from work, whatever it is, and there's one problem, one problem that threatens to rob you of it all. Whether it's death close to you, sickness in your body or the body of a family member, suffering in your life, whether it's physical, emotional, or mental, you blink and it seems like all of God's promises and all of those blessings have been quenched by this one problem. And we can all testify how quickly that problem or those problems can come on. I wonder if you're here today bearing the burden of that. For yourself, or maybe for a loved one. You had an idea of how things were going to go in your job, in your life, in your family, in your marriage, with your finances. You had a plan, you had a whole story crafted how this is all gonna go, and snap, you wake up one day and it all seems to be falling apart. I wonder if you might be down in that right now. And maybe you're not. Maybe you're here this morning on top of a mountain and everything's still going according to plan. And everybody in this room would tell you, just wait. Things will change. Trials will come. Suffering will come. Problems will come. Maybe you find yourself this morning like these Hebrew children, having experienced the blessing of God, knowing his joy and his peace and his fulfillment, only to have it stripped away from you. And now you find yourself in fear and bondage and death. How quickly those promises fade into the problem. Lastly today, though, we see Amidst all the promises and even with the problems, God has one plan. As we turn into chapter 2 and read those first 10 verses, we know the story. We've known it from a child probably seeing the little felt Bible stories on the felt board in Bible school or the little pictures of Moses and the baby and then the ten plagues and the exes. We know how the story goes. We know how the story ends. But sometimes we need to remember that these people did not. They did not know this story. It was happening to them. They did not know how all this was going to pan out. But we do. And as we begin to read, even here, we begin to see God's plan unfold. Before we even get to the meat of the story, we see God's plan begin to unfold. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And we would be tempted to look at that, say that's very nice, Levites, I remember all that stuff, and pass right over it. Failing to see that already this child is uniquely called. This child is uniquely qualified to serve as a spiritual leader. 
that we haven't even received the law. And God hasn't even revealed that the Levites will be the tribe of priests. He hasn't even told that. Moses is not even born yet. And yet we see the beginning of Moses' origin here with the marriage of these two Levites. God already preparing and calling and qualifying Moses for the job that he will call him to do. In verse 2, we see some similar, familiar language from other language in Scripture. She conceived and bore a son. That phrase is significant, not, not because it's just so strange in ancient Near Eastern culture. It's quite common. But of the 16 times that phrase is used in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, 15 of them are in Genesis And the 16th is this one right here at the beginning of Exodus. And so Moses writing this story, understanding where he came from and what his calling was, understands that he is the last in this line of particularly called men that were raised up by God to preserve and to prepare the promise. This last use of that phrase, all other 15 are in Genesis, this one is here. She conceived and bore a son. We saw those echoes from Genesis earlier, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and let us make man in our image. We saw all those pictures. Why do we have those ties to Genesis? And there's another one here in verse 2 also. When she saw that he was a fine child. I don't know what your translation says. Mine says fine child. If you go and look at the original Hebrew words, she saw that the child was tov. The child was good. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you today. She saw that the child was good. Maybe it reminds us of God's own words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31, when he said time and time again, after he was making everything, at the end of every day that he made these things, what did he say? He saw it, and it was very good. And at the end of it all, he saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And now we see this woman look at her baby and say, he is good. But why these echoes? Why all these shadows from Genesis? Why the repeated words and phrases? Well, because it's revealing one plan. In Genesis, we saw that out of the nothingness and the abyss of the universe, God brings forth something from the nothing, speaking life and light into existence and the creation of the cosmos and all that we see around us. And what did God say every step of the way? It is good. This is my design. This is my plan. Even in the the fall, even in the fall into sin and death, he says, I have a plan. This is my plan. Redemption is coming through the seed of this woman. And now even in this promise, even in this problem, we see God's plan beginning to unfold in what the author pictures as the dawn of a new creation with the birth of a son. But the threat isn't over. Says she tried to hide the child for three months, but was unable to. And so in verse three, we read that she made a basket, put tar and other materials on it with the reeds, the bulrushes, and she set it among the reeds by the riverbank. All of this, verse four, under the watchful eye of his sister Miriam. In verses 5 and 6, we see that he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter herself. 
And then this very interesting turn of providence in verses 7 through 9. Miriam there keeping out and the whole time sees what's happening, goes up to Pharaoh's daughter, says, oh, shall I find someone to nurse him for you? I know just the woman and goes and find Moses' mother. And you know what the text seems to indicate is that the child for a long time was raised by his own mother before being returned to Pharaoh's court and Pharaoh's daughter. What kindness and goodness of God to provide for this child in this way. To preserve him from the threat of Pharaoh. To protect him in a treacherous predicament in this basket. Providing a loving sister to watch over him the whole time. Putting pity and love into Pharaoh's daughter's heart who saved him from the water. Placing him in the lineage of Levi, this priestly spiritual tribe. And here's the thing. We could keep going back and 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 see God's plan every step of the way. Because there was never a time when God, in his sovereignty and power, were not at work in every single detail. The good, the bad, the righteous, the wicked, all unfolding God's one plan according to God's one promise, despite any problems that would come to pass. And we continue to see God's actions through women in this plan. Named Shifra, Pua, Moses' mother, Moses' sister Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, the women in her court. We say, why would Moses include this? Ancient Near Eastern documents did not bring glory and honor to women in their stories. Why is this here? What's well, a reminder of the plan? It's a reminder of the saga of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. It's the saga that's on the page of every single portion of Scripture, behind every story in Scripture, because it is the one story in all of Scripture, not just of Exodus, but all the way through the Bible, that a promise was made by God to humanity, to a nation, to be a blessing to all. And then a problem was brought about by deception of the serpent and the sin and the fall came. But there was nevertheless a plan to redeem it all in the birth of a son from a woman. And here in the midst of all this mess and all the sweat and the blood of these oppressed, enslaved people, 400 years in the mires of slavery, when it seemed as if God's promise and God's plan had been stalled, had been halted, or even forgotten, in the middle of all these problems, a son is born. And verse 10, we see his name given by Pharaoh's daughter. I will call him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And the word Moses in Hebrew sounds like the word for to draw out. But we know there's much more to that name, don't we? It's not just that he was drawn out of the water, but that he will draw out these people from slavery according to God's promise and God's plan. But I can't help this morning but think of another son born of a woman, born into terrible circumstances, with another murderous king breathing down his neck, yet preserved by God's power, just as Moses was preserved in the basket. A son who will be born also to draw out a people from slavery and bondage so that they can be God's people in God's land and be a blessing to all nations. 
another son who had hit the biggest problem imaginable and that he was crushed not just by the slavery of an indignant Pharaoh but by the wrath of his own father as he was punished in an atoning death for our sins. But just as Moses was drawn out of the water and just as Moses would draw out a people from slavery, God would draw out his own son from the jaws of death so that he might draw out a nation for himself from every other nation and tribe and language. That is God's promise. That is God's plan. And no problem, not even death itself, can stop that plan. And you wonder if you can trust him today to fulfill his promises. What was stacked against Moses? What was stacked against the Hebrews? What was stacked against Jesus? What was stacked against the apostles? What was stacked against the early church? Here's the good news for you today. The pharaohs came and went. They rose and they fell, and they lie on the ash heap of history. Every empire of man, even the Roman Empire that persecuted so fervently the early church, rose and fell in the ash heap of history. But today, the church of Jesus Christ still stands alive and well and victorious and triumphant forever. That is the story of God. Amen. And you wonder if you can trust him to fulfill his promises. I may not know everything that you are facing today. I do not know everything you are facing today. I may not know every detail of your problem or your problems. But I know a God who made a promise. And a God who has a plan. And here's the good news for you. If you are in Christ... You know his plan too. Romans 8.28 tells us his plan. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You also know in verse 29 what that good is. That those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And you know that if he called you to that and he has done that for you, verse 30, he will finish it. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he has already, as if it were, glorified. And the best news this morning is although you might fail, and you will, and though everything around you might fail, God can't fail. Look down at Romans 8, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise the Lord. You will be his and he will be yours. And in all the problems, that is his promise and that is his plan. And you can trust him. Because what God is today is what God was yesterday. And what he is today and was yesterday, he will be forever. There's a God that can't change, that can't lie, that can't sin, that can't be tempted, that never fails. 
You can trust him today with the trust of a mother. And put her tiny baby boy into a basket and pushed him off into the unknown. You can trust the trust of a mother who gave birth to a little boy who was named Moses because he drew out a people for God. You can trust in another son named Jesus. Named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I wonder this morning if you know this deliverance in Christ. Do you know this salvation in him? And if you do, believer, I wonder if you know that you're able to trust this God. Or again, as we discussed last week with prayer, prayer and trust and faith in him takes a backseat to how you can manage everything yourself. Whatever problem or problems or burdens you have brought into this place today, they are no match for God's promise and God's plan and God's faithfulness to do everything he said he would do for you and for your family. And that is, above all, to make you like Jesus and to bring you to himself in glory. He will do that. You can trust him because he's faithful. Our God and our Father, we love you and we thank you for your great faithfulness. That there is indeed no shadow of turning or changing or fault with you. God, we know this morning that we can trust you with our very lives. We can trust you with our souls. We can trust you with our eternities. And God, I ask that if there are people in this room today who have not yet trusted you through your son Jesus for salvation, that today would be the day they are drawn out of this world and drawn out of their sin and drawn to faith in Christ by your Holy Spirit. And for those of us who do know you, increase our faith, increase our trust by increasing our knowledge and our awareness of who you are as the faithful God who keeps his promise according to his plan. God, enable us this morning to lay our problems at your feet and to be content to leave them there. God, we love you. We ask that you would move by your Holy Spirit in this time of response. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.